1: Greetings fellow time travellers, as always, terrific to have you with me as we travel together through space and time in search of understanding. Before we get started, I have to say thanks. I don't have to say thanks, I willingly offer up my gratitude to all the people who show their support for this podcast series by subscribing to my Patreon.com site because it's the financial support from there that enables Paul and I to do everything else that we do on here. So thank you to all of those who've already done so. If you're not a member and you'd like to join, please do go to patreon.com, search for me by name, fill in the form, tick the box, part with some cash and become part of the family. And it is a family. It's a community of people who are in touch with one another. We're all like minded, uh, inquiring, curious uh, types fascinated by history and archaeology and current affairs. Um, There's, you know, there's a weekly question and answer. There's weekly vodcasts. There's all access to the podcasts. Uh, It'd be great to have you along. So that's enough of the advert. Now it's time to strap ourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. Power, propaganda, and purgatory. Barefoot and fasting, a blizzard raging all around him. For three days and three nights, wearing only a penitent's hair shirt, the Emperor stands outside the castle gates. The Crown and the church go head to head. Excommunication, submission and absolution. A bitter clash for control of the strings of power, and a wound is opened that won't heal for centuries. endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil, in the last episode we saw the battle lines being drawn up for what would fuel the coming Crusades. Which moment in history are we at this week? Well Paul, this week our focus shifts somewhat and instead of looking at the battle between different religions we're examining an eternal fight within one of them. We're heading to the castle of Canossa in Italy uh, as two ruthlessly stubborn men are at each other's throats as church and state wrestle for power. We're in a place called Canossa which is in northern Italy and uh, the characters involved are Henry IV who is the Holy Roman Emperor and he's up against Pope Gregory the Seventh. And it's one of those fantastic, to me anyway, fascinating tussles between the secular world and the religious world. That were always bumping heads, especially in the Middle Ages. The date, let's say the twenty-eighth of january ten seventy-seven. Okay, so we're in that first part of the second millennium AD. I love these stories. You remember when Bishop Ambrose went head to head with the emperor and brought him to heel? It, it it's another of those. And I find that uh, testy relationship that there was from the start, really, between the leader of the Christian faith and whoever was the earthly, secular leader, kings, emperors, whatever, there's always conflict. There's always conflict between them. Because... You can imagine the kind of characters, you know, kings and emperors. They're born to it, you know, so they talk about entitlement. They're the sort of men that are born, and women. They're, they're born believing that they've been put upon their thrones by an act of God. Those that are that feel divinely inspired. You know, you talk about people like King Charles the First in England. You know, he was absolute, and, and his his father James the Sixth, absolutely convinced that they were there because God wanted them to be there. And then then they come up against a character like a Pope. And Popes are similarly, whatever their faith might have been, they were ambitious men who wanted power, wanted control. And they also believe that they've got their position directly from God. So you've, you've got the stages set at that point. If you get the two wrong sorts of characters that happen to be on the two thrones, you know the throne of st peter's in in the vatican and the imperial throne or or, the, or a king you're always going to get trouble and what happened between henry the 4th the emperor and gregory the 7th the pope in the 1070s it goes down as some of the most significant moments in all of the middle ages right so it's a, it's a it's a big deal this one and is it because there's so much at stake you know power and wealth and all that Yeah, I I think, I think we, I think we see it even today, really, people of a certain mindset are are after power and they're after control. They want, they want power and they want that power because they want to tell everyone else what to do. It's a psychology. (laughs) I think it's practically an illness. Where you want to control the the behaviour and the and the lives of people you'll never meet, they want to cast the shadow of their hand as far as they possibly can, so that everyone, even people they'll never talk to, never know in life, they still they want to content themselves w- w- with the idea that all of the people are doing what they tell them to do. And we see it around us now, you know. You obviously in the in the characters that have gravitated into the political realm, for example, especially those that take up senior office—prime ministers, chancellors of the exchequer, foreign secretaries, home secretaries—those characters. And then you've got the the World Economic Forum, uh, and you've got the the World Health Organization, the United Nations, the European Union—the sort of people that drift into those. Or they don't drift. They they determinedly get in amongst those organisations. And then once they're in, they want to get to the top job. Those people are trouble. I'm telling you now, you know, this, this notion that they're in it because they want to make the world a better place, I don't buy it. Not from any of them. I think any of the ones that actually emerge as being minded to make the world a better place, I'm pretty sure they're the ones that get bumped off. I think they're the ones that get a bullet to be quite honest. So power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a that's a cliche, but it's true. So you had these two characters, you got Henry IV, you, Gregory the 7th. His his real name, he's Pope Gregory the 7th. His real name's Hildebrand. Relevant or really irrelevant, I don't know, but Hildebrand's a hero from German legend. A very powerful figure. So he's that was his given name. That was the name his mum gave him. And who knows, maybe that affected him. And uh, quite unusually, really, among popes, uh, people tended to remember and continued to refer to him by his name. So as well as calling him Pope Gregory, Hildebrand became a, you know, that was the brand. And I I don't know whether it was because of the fact that Hildebrand, as a name, referred to somebody heroic and determined. So there was trouble between these two men, right right from the get-go, because... Henry believed absolutely that he had the power to invest bishops and senior clergy in his empire. If the job became vacant, it was up to him to appoint the next bishop. That wasn't just his belief, that was a belief that was is as, old as, as old as Christianity. The, the kings and the emperors, they wanted to believe that, that appointing those roles was up to them. Not Pope. He didn't appoint the pope, but that everybody else with a religious job, with a religious job title, was going to be appointed. And, and Henry IV was as committed to that as anybody before him or anybody after. And he comes up against Gregory VII, who believes absolutely that it should be the pope that does all this. Which you can—I mean, you can see both sides. You can certainly see why the, the head of the church would believe that the, the senior roles in the church beneath him, that he would have the, the final say. So they're going to be in conflict. It starts to come to a head. They're, they are bumping heads, but on the 24th of January 1076, Henry took the step of bringing a gathering of German bishops together at Worms, a city in, in Germany. It's not far from Frankfurt, I think. Uh, so he brings them together for a synod, which is a gathering. And he persuades them, however, it's achieved. That they, they kind of abandon their loyalty to the Pope, these German bishops, and energised and inspired by that gain, Henry demands that Gregory abdicate, steps down from the role of Pope. So, well, well, you can imagine uh, Gregory the Seventh uh, takes umbrage at this. His response is to excommunicate henry right so to excommunicate literally means to put out of the community he's out of the church he's he's out from underneath the umbrella provided by god and in the understanding of the time and there are those who still believe it to this day if you're excommunicated you can't get into heaven so your soul is eternally damned so that was the biggest penalty really well short of death but that wasn't that wasn't really in the pope's gift but to to be excommunicated in some ways was worse than death because it meant that forever after your soul was damned so he brings this down on henry now powerful people being powerful people the way that that's responded to you know back in germany and and around henry his friends abandon him they turn their backs on him and his enemies start sharpening Their knives, because, you know, the princes, the German princes that aren't emperor but fancy a crack at that job. There's blood in the water now. The German princes, not all of them, but enough of them, come together and they declare that if if Henry's not back in the good books, if his excommunication isn't cancelled within a year, then they will disregard him as emperor. And furthermore they will find, identify, choose a new candidate. So the game is afoot now. You can't put yourself back in the mind of, of anyone and you certainly can't put yourself back in the mind of Henry IV, but it's difficult to, to work out why he plays the game the way that he does. For one thing, although he's in trouble with the aristos around him, which is hardly surprising because that's a that's a nest of vipers, but the people, his subjects if you like, they're still on side he he retains popularity right Right. so it may be the case that he thinks right the people will want me to be in a good place the people who love me they'll certainly want me to still be within the, the, the body of the kirk so it may have been in his calculated interest to take the path that he did because he he decides that he will go and seek forgiveness from Hildebrand, from Pope Gregory. Is it because he finally decides that he's fallen out, he's in trouble with God? Is it truly the act of a penitent man? Or is he playing politics? Is he just making sure to keep his people on side by doing something that probably in the main they might approve of? Who knows? But the point is that he sets out to put himself in front of the Pope and seek forgiveness. Word reaches him. You have to wonder how word gets around in these you know, in the 1070s, but he doesn't get an email obviously. But word, word reaches him that the Pope is in Canossa. He's staying with Matilda of Tuscany. Matilda of Tuscany is a significant personage in her own right. She's got her own problems with Henry, and lo and behold, she's sucking up to the Pope. And Pope Gregory has taken the opportunity to be with her. So he's in her castle at Canossa, and Henry decides to, to go there. And it's not easy. He embarks with his wife, who's Bertha of Savoy, and their son, Conrad, who's just a child, and they set out with a retinue. 50 people, it's difficult to be sure. making So they come from Germany, and they're going for, you know, they, they go to be with him in, in, to look for him in Canossa. And it was a difficult path that he had to walk, literally and metaphorically, because the, the German princes, some of them at least, decided to, to make it hard for him, and so, for example, the easiest route into northern Italy was barred for him, so he had to, he had to go the hard way, you know, over a considerable mountain pass in winter, right? so there's snow and all the rest of it, snow and ice, and by some estimates, Henry himself and his wife and his child were in real physical danger as they made their way to Canossa. But eventually, they get there. So he arrives, he arrives in Canossa, and he turns up outside the gates. And it's January 1077. It's bleak. It's a storm. It's, you know, winter is raging. And he turns up, the, the lot of them turn up outside the gates of Canossa, and the gates are barred to them. So Henry, according to, the, according to the stories, he's wearing, when he appears and goes down on his knees at the gates of the castle, he's wearing just a hair shirt. Right, so he's he's dressed he's playing the part of the penitent, and the hair shirt's quite interesting actually. The hair shirt was um, what all penitents traditionally wore. Certainly, someone seeking forgiveness, but it's also deeper than that. It, it may there's, if you go all the way back to into prehistory, like if you go back to say somewhere like Çatalhöyük in Turkey, which is an an ancient prehistoric village where some of the very first farmers. Lived right back at the right back at the switch from hunting to farming chattel huyuk was a big settlement of people all living together you know a, you know a city really had come together you might as well call it a city and there's there's impressions in the in the clay floors and, and 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 in some of the ceramics there from animal skins with hair and for various reasons archaeologists have suggested that it's possible that the people of chattel huyuk in their kind of cosmology might have from time to time worn hair shirts or or garments with animal hair, rough, uncomfortable, against the skin, because they might have been doing that in pursuit of a cleansing, a a spiritual cleansing, you know, to get on the right side of whatever their understanding of reality was. So the idea of the hair shirt is old. Anyone who's seen, um, you know, the Dan Brown movie, um, uh, The Da Vinci Code, there's the mad monk that wears what he calls a salise, which is that metal chain, like the top of a socks is that suspender belt thing that he tightens around his thigh and the nails dig into his flesh and he bleeds in its agony. That's called a solise. Well, the broader term solise also takes in something like a hair shirt. It's anything that's worn deliberately to make you physically uncomfortable. And in the Christian tradition, it's also, it's what um, John the Baptist, if you read the Gospels, John the Baptist is described as wearing camel hair clothes, or a, or a robe, or a, or, a, or a wrapping made of camel hair, and it's further in the, in, the, in the Christian tradition. There's the idea that he was wearing that as penitence. You know, you're punishing himself in, in an attempt to become a better person. So the hair shirt is a, you know, that's a that's a big deal that runs right through the story of of humankind in search of enlightenment. It's always there. So Henry's got the hair shirt on, he's on his knees, and Gregory keeps him there on his knees, fasting, not eating, uh, for three days. I'll I'll read you from Gregory's own account, uh, the Pope's own account. Once arrived, he, Henry, presented himself at the gate of the castle, barefoot and clad only in wretched woolen garments, beseeching up with tears to grant him absolution and forgiveness. This he continued to do for three days until all those about us were moved to compassion at his plight. Indeed, they marvelled at our hardness of heart. So, you know, people around the pope are begging him to let Henry in because he's being such a good penitent. So, the doors open. Henry comes in. He get, maybe gets to change out of his hair shirt. It's not quite clear. And he takes communion with Henry and with Matilda of Tuscany. So. It must have been, no matter what, it must have been a bit of a humiliation for him because there he is in face of two of his opponents and he has to, you know, he has to suck it up. And he takes communion and that's it. He's he's back in the body of the church. And then the the, the three of them and more of the entourage, they sit down for a dinner. And, and apparently at the dinner, uh, Henry didn't eat a mouthful. He just sat digging his nails into the wood of the table because, you know, he's grimacing at the humiliation of it all. So this, arguably the most significant moment when a, a secular ruler, an emperor, was put in his place by a churchman, the Pope. This is the start of the investiture contest, so-called, as it's known, because Henry having taken up this position and Gregory having taken up this position, it, was the, it continued on with other characters for, forever. It was, always, it was always there in the background. But this, this moment when Henry goes on his knees and begs the forgiveness of the Pope and, and gets welcomed back into the church and takes communion at Canossa is regarded as one of the most significant moments in, in the whole of the Middle Ages. And it was never forgotten, the walk to Canossa... It's kind of fallen from from common parlance now, but for the longest time, to walk to Canossa became a it was something you said if somebody had had to you know had had to humiliate themselves really, or had, had had to do something against their will in order to get something else they wanted. That was called you know so and so had to walk to Canossa. It went into the common parlance at that point. Even I mean perhaps one of the most famous ones when Chamberlain. When Neville Chamberlain, the British Prime Minister, goes to Berchtesgaden to see Hitler in 1938, you know, comes back with a piece of paper and all that. It, people at the time said, you know, that, that Chamberlain has taken the walk to Canossa because he was he was going there to see somebody that a great rival in pursuit of something that he wanted and you know, maybe didn't want to have to go to him. You know, the, the you know the Muhammad had to go to the mountain, as it were. You know, Chamberlain had to go to Hitler, but that was walking to Canossa. And on the face of it, you know, if you if you just draw the line there, you think, oh well, that's it. The, you know, the Pope's the, the, he's won the game, he's won the Investiture Contest. But oh no, <laughs> within no sooner was it over, no sooner was was Henry back in Germany than he was, you know, bumping heads with the Pope again because he had, he had no intention of of surrendering. His determination that he be the, the top dog. They just keep fighting, and you know, Gregory excommunicates Henry again. <laughs> it all it all happens again. Um, and but but, but uh, d- uh, d- and they go to war there's a there, oh, there's a civil war um and henry wins it henry's triumphant he invades rome uh, and he, and gregory has to flee and henry has him replaced with the so-called anti-pope clement iii he puts his own man in the top job as a further snubbing of um of, of of Hildebrand Gregory the Seventh, but but there you go. It is a significant moment in history, regarded by some as one of the most significant events in the whole of the Middle Ages. It reverberates down through history um, because by the time you get to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, Henry VIII and all that. Henry Henry the Fourth, that 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 unruly, that turbulent emperor he is exalted by some he's held up by some as a kind of a poster boy of the protestant he's, some sometimes they call him the first protestant because you know because obviously protestantism was protesting about the catholic church and therefore the pope and the, when the when the reformation got up and running people looked back to the way that henry the fourth had taken on gregory the seventh and so they called him the first protestant and he became a poster boy of the reformation and and People looked to Henry's example uh, uh, for guidance as to how they were to approach a tyrannical institution, and f- and for that reason, you know, for that reason, that's why it has such modern connotations because the centralisation of power that's going on, be it in the European Union, be it in the, the World Economic Forum, you know, that that centralising of power, anyone anyone going up against it would be would be seen as taking the lead from Henry the Fourth who when confronted with this figure, trying to cast the shadow of his hand over the Christian world, went for him and to some extent succeeded in the end in knocking him off his perch. So the, the consequences, the aftershocks, the reverberations of Henry IV's walk to Canossa to confront or to, or to meet with Gregory VII, it's a big deal. The the church was a lot more powerful then, wasn't it? I know it's still powerful today, but it was a lot more powerful then, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, I mean, absolutely. There was... There still is for many people, but at the time, when more people believed absolutely in the power of God, you know, the presence of God there, looking down on everyone, you know, the ultimate surveillance camera. So they believed in the power of the church and the power of bishops and the power of the Pope. These men for the mass of the population held in their hands everyone's eternal souls. You know, they had power over whether or not you got to heaven or whether you spent eternity in perdition and hell. That belief was very strong. Who can say what Henry IV absolutely in his heart of hearts believed? But it's reasonable to imagine that he did believe what was understood about God and the Christian faith and that to fall foul of it, might put them into eternal damnation let's imagine that was your psychology and let's imagine that that was the psychology of the majority of people in the middle ages so imagine looking on at that as a member of the general population seeing the emperor go toe-to-toe with the pope you know it's 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 not just life and death it's the very fate of eternal souls and and perhaps, but you know, maybe if you were under the rulership of, of an of an emperor who's been excommunicated, does that mean that, that you're tainted too? You know, if your emperor, if your king, is is seen to be bad in the eyes of the church, does that is that infecting you like an airborne virus? Does that compromise your chances of getting to heaven as well? It's it's big stuff. A born fighter who fought all his life. Older, out of shape and heartbroken, the sharks are circling. His own son is at his throat. The King of France is making mischief. The Scots are prowling his northern border. And on the horizon is King Canute, sailing with a great army. With war looming and money needed, it's tax, tax and tax again, as the most remarkable statistical document in the history of Europe is drawn up. The Doomsday Book. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be lovely to see you there. Check out the Instagram account. It's called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And there's my YouTube channel, which is simply called the Neil Oliver channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials?